Welcome back to Block Channel, and we're back this week for episode 20, the very last episode in season Pantone Green of Block <laughs> Channel. And yeah, I said Pantone Green because we're really annoying. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're really excited to be here for the last episode of Pantone Green uh, for this season. And the next season will probably start, it could start the next day after this one airs. Like, there's no rules here. It's a podcast. Um, so, uh, so of course, you know, we're, we're, we're blessed this week with another guest, um, uh, a really, 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 uh, smart gentleman, a guy that I respect who's working really hard in the crypto space, uh, John Lillick from consensus. Uh, and then I have my, uh, co-host with me today, um, Dimitri Ferguson and Dr. Corey Petty, as usual, my homies here holding it down. Yo. Uh, gentlemen, go ahead and introduce yourself. Go ahead, D. All right. Well. I'm D, host of to the Bitcoin podcast and Block Channel podcast, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's been a just a wild ride here on season Pantone Green. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to closing out Pantone Green right now, and with a strong episode here with John. So glad to be here. All right, Dr. Petty here, strong as ever. Always, always looking forward to talking to people on the show. It's the greatest show ever. <laughs> Pantone <laughs> Green. <laughs> <laughs> and, as, and as I said, um, you know, we're joined by our guest today, uh, John Lillick from Consensus. So without myself giving him a formal introduction, I'll let that do him do that himself. So, John, can you just, just give us a briefer on uh, your background, uh, educational wise, um, uh, maybe job wise? How, how you ended up in the crypto space? How long you been in the game? And just tell us what's good. Sure. Well, hey guys. So uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, so I guess uh, maybe some people know me as kind of the dude from Consensus. I guess um, I so so background. I'm I'm also like like Vitalik, like Joe, like many others in this space. Oddly enough, uh, I'm also from Toronto originally. Um, I have uh, sort of an economics background. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, so, like my, my bachelor of commerce in economics, I'm doing my master's of science right now in renewable energy and distributions and distributed generation systems. Um, and, and I guess I've been in the crypto space, uh, probably since 2000, late 2010 or so. Um, it's, so I actually work with my brother, um, guy named Igor Lilik. He's, uh, kind of one of our technical leads at consensus, I think he heard about it early 2010. This is when he was working at AWS um, through some of his colleagues, um, and and I just kind of heard about it. I don't know randomly on the internet somehow. Um, and then I guess just over time, um, the usual trapping initially kind of dismissed it. Um, again, I, I don't know. As it started gaining momentum online, I started following it a bit more. Soon I realized I could uh, purchase some interesting products online with it. Um, so that kind of like... <laughs> interesting uh, products. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. You mean like useful so, accessories on websites like Purse.io? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I was big into alpaca socks back in the day. Ah, uh, alpaca socks. Uh, Got it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. They're so comfortable. They're so comfy. <laughs> that's right. But uh, no, I mean that that stoked my interest, and then I kind of like started looking into you know the the underlying technology. My brother sort of also was coming back full circle because I think he initially sort of dismissed it as well, or didn't really dismiss it, just didn't dive into it. And then and then probably in earnest, like early 2012, really dove into it. Um, and ever since then, it's sort of I don't know, almost become a part of my identity this entire ecosystem and i mean i think i've tweeted this before talked about it online but you know a blockchain lifestyle once seen and and you know experiencing what it's like to have custody over things that you care about and so let's say you know your money or or very soon your identity um or attributes about your identity um it you know, that's a very empowering, liberating kind of um, experience, and and I've been extremely fortunate to sort of stumble my way through this ecosystem as it as it uh, continues to emerge. Um, but yeah, and then I guess 2013. Um, at that point, I moved moved to New York, and my brother and I kind of like formed like Voltron. We started working together. Hmm. Um, we were doing a bunch of. 
sort of consulting work, I guess, uh, in New York City in the fintech space. Um, at the same time, and, and this is probably broadly speaking, a part of the consensus story where there was in New York City, like a very vibrant bit dev community at the time and, and still hanging out, getting to know each other. Um, we all met Joe. Joe is like sort of the center and the swirl of all of this activity and, and was very, um, very passionate, especially early on. And then, and then I just sort of somehow uh, ended up in the company and and then ever since then um as we've kind of continued to grow um you know i guess my role in the company has expanded but but that's roughly sort of the the crypto journey for me up to this point i guess nice there's a few things you said i was, was really interested in and the first is you know you mentioned it's exciting having custody of these things like your identity and your money that you didn't use to. And so the question I have is, do you think people like on a general sense are ready for that custody? Like, do they understand what that means? And then the second question is if you guys form Voltron, are you the black lion, the green lion, <laughs> yellow? I, th I think I'm the dandy lion. I'm the, <laughs> the, the... he's a John Lilly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, that that's, that's really interesting. And, and, um, a bunch of us, you know, have had conversations about that. So like, I know that I've personally had a lot of anxiety at different times, uh, throughout the years of like being responsible, you know, um, with, with where like the buck stops with me. And if I do something stupid or screw something up or if I'm careless or whatever, um, I, I could like potentially, I don't know, <laughs> have no recourse and lose a chunk of my money or potentially all of it or whatever. And so that, that is a huge responsibility and I am not entirely convinced that the general public is prepared. Um, nor, nor do most people I think want to assume that kind of like responsibility. Um, but you know, at the same time, I also think that most people don't really understand kind of the notion of money and, and what, um, the systems and you know that we've got in place right now that kind of govern the way our economy works and ultimately our society works. I don't, I don't know that people understand how brittle in many instances those systems really are. Um, and so there's there's a couple of things happening in parallel that I think are sort of coalescing. One, over time, you know, these crypto tools um, are getting better. They're getting more user friendly. Um, Certainly, I remember, and I'm sure you guys and many other people out there remember the early days where, you know, stuff was just like, unless unless you were technical, you, you know, or at least somewhat technical, it was difficult to navigate in the space at all. Um, and now, uh, you know, we're getting to a place where a lot of the critical kind of UI, UX problems are starting to be tackled. Things are getting easier, um, more user-friendly, et cetera. When you start to introduce abstraction layers like like social recovery, for example, is an interesting one where I think this is something that you poured in other and probably other identity systems. I think Facebook just introduced it too. I forget what they call it though, but uh, basically if you lose access or, you know, um, if you lose your phone and your private key, for example, how do you recover your identity? Well, you know, you designate four or five people or however many people that you trust, like your brother, your sister, your mom, dad, whatever, your best friend. And then, you know, they can sort of, you know, participate in, in a multi-wallet and unlock whatever it is that you've lost. Um, so so I think, yeah, I mean, social recovery is, is um, I think, pretty for these concerns because it's, it's, it's extremely unnerving, really, uh, I think, for, for most people that, uh, that you don't have any recourse in the event that you – you know, you lose your private keys or seed phrase or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think that's a tough one. Um, but the tools are getting better. And at the same time, um, some of the, you know, fragility in the existing system is starting to become apparent. And some of the bottlenecks and choke points are starting to uh, really hamper people's abilities to have the kind of degree of financial flexibility and freedom they would otherwise want. Um, at, at which point being in 
sort of full custody and having that responsibility doesn't seem like such a thing compared to like, I don't know, your bank account being arbitrarily closed down or living in a country where hyperinflation takes over or severe capital controls take over and, and you know, you're stuck and you, 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 because of the systemic failures. So, um, so, you know, like for example, the Bolivar, I mean, I know that's a bit of a cliche, but, um, there are different countries around the world. Um, and I think this is, this is one of the other interesting dynamics with this ecosystem is it's, the, you know, the context is global, right? Sometimes we try to define it a bit too much in the Western context or American context or European context or what have you, but, um, it's truly global and, and there are many regions around the world and I've been extremely fortunate, uh, in my experiences at consensus to like pretty much go all over the place. Um, and in doing so learning about what's happening in different parts of the world. And so those dynamics uh, are in flux and, and you know, there's some, some places in the world, man, where like, you know, having a bank account and being in the legacy financial system is a nightmare. And, you know, um, I think there's lots and lots of people that would readily assume the, kind of risk and burden of being responsible, um, you know, for themselves. Um, but also having, having the benefit of, of, of having custody and, and being in control. You mentioned a few things, uh, about like, kind of like where, 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 what people may want and what they can do right now based on the current technology. And for us people in like press in America, it's like, it's, it's basically, like the convenience factor is kind of cool. Most people who are in this are only doing it because it's 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 interesting. It's it's appealing to some ideology they have. But a lot of people around the world have these problems that you mentioned, and there isn't as nearly there isn't nearly as much infrastructure in those places that allow the convenience that we have in America to, to play with these types of technologies. Like what's currently going on? I know that your your consensus is currently working on a lot of things to expand into areas where that, that infrastructure is just simply not there. Yeah. I mean, so that, that's a really good point. Uh, so, so there's a couple of ways to look at it. And, and I would start with like, if we take the American or Western context and let's say the American context, I mean, we have, uh, you know, the most stable, robust financial system like ever. Right. I mean, yeah. y the dollar is great. Um, debt has, sort of served us extremely well fractional reserve banking has just created enormous amounts of capital which has led to tremendous infrastructure and technologies and all kinds of things being built um and and of course we have you know constructs like the petrodollar and our ability to essentially enforce and project power um and and maintain a you know a, a peaceful world order essentially. I mean, post World War II, this Pax Americana period has been tremendous. I mean, it's been stable, peace. I mean, relatively speaking, the context of human yeah. history is. I'm not saying it's perfect, but so all of those things reflect in the dollar and ultimately in the in the site. In you know, it's like a positive feedback loop. And so most people in America, you're absolutely right. They have uh, you know all all the infrastructure they need to more or less live a comfortable, stable, modern life with like their debit card and their, I don't know, Chase bank account. Um, but that's really not the case throughout the world. And so there are, you know, different regions that are in different phases of their growth and development with different political structures, with different uh, power projection capabilities, et cetera. I mean, you know, some, again, cliche examples, but people talk about Zimbabwe or they talk about Argentina or they talk about China you know, Zimbabwe in, in, in the case where authority, central bank just totally fails and you have like miserable hyperinflation and basically money is totally worthless and, you know, the system collapses or Argentina where the capital controls are just crazy, um, where you have like black markets for money because people can't move their money out of the country. Um, and so you've got this like imposition um you know, against people and, and, and it's, and, and so you have like a small group of, um, you know, small group of people in charge that make these like arbitrary decisions that like impact the lives of millions. Um, likewise in China, um, you know, capital controls exist. And so, and, and, uh, and, and I can understand for in the, in the case of China, why the government would want to 
to be cognizant and mindful of keeping the capital in the country because they want it sort of reinvested, et cetera. But, you know, the tension lies within the freedom of the individual uh, to do as they please with with their money. Mm-hmm. So I like in oh, other parts. So, so I was going to say, so in other parts of the world, um, you know, blockchain technologies, cryptocurrencies um, are fundamentally a, a very liberating, uh, you know, opportunity that doesn't otherwise exist. Um, and, and that's that's kind of the key differentiator that, you know, maybe isn't the case in the United States where, I mean, our financial system is pretty robust where like, you know, opportunities do exist within the system. So, you know, Bitcoin or Ether or, or Dash or whatever coin doesn't necessarily afford you any greater, I mean, to some extent it might, but um, the, the marginal benefit that you get from participating in, in this ecosystem isn't that much relative to just, like I said, using your Chase debit card versus, you know, in, in, in a place like Argentina where you literally have to smuggle your money out if you want it out of the country. So where would you say consensus is focusing in um, the majority of its efforts like currently? Um, so, you know, you are, are decentralized in nature um, as a company. Um, so uh, being decentralized in nature, where are you all focusing your efforts on the hardest um, to help with, I guess, adoption of Ethereum? And other Ethereum-related technologies. Yeah, so so I would say so I would break it down this way first. Consensus basically does let's say three things. One is infrastructure, so that's like stuff that we build that's open source that we contribute to the community. Maybe that's things like BTC Relay or Fstats or what have you. Um, uh, the the second thing that we do is product, so building stuff and you know deploying it and hopefully people use it and that might be things like Uport um, or maybe something in the future like Balance Three, like the accounting app um, or the identity app. And then the third thing that we do is like what we call enterprise. So the, let's say consulting, professional services, working with big companies and and hopefully when we get opportunities, governments. And that's much more. Um, so so the enterprise pull, if you will, is the thing that gets us into emerging markets in different parts of the world because we get gigs working with companies or governments where we get paid to, you know, do the kind of stuff that uh, software consultants do and 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 whether that's, um, you know, building things like proof of concepts or advising governments or actually building products and systems that uh, will go into production for, for, for big corporates or, or – or, or, or governments, um, and and in that is where we have like the opportunity to to get into some of these cool spaces that we otherwise wouldn't. So in that context, um, we've done a bunch of stuff in Asia, uh, we, we like in Tokyo and uh, in Thailand and in the Philippines, um, and and so Japan is is super interesting, um, and it's super interesting for for one reason for for a couple reasons, but one in particular, and and. So Japan is definitely one place where I think, you know, we've done some stuff um, and I think we're going to do a lot more and I think others are going to do a lot more. But if you look at Japan, highly developed economy, it's got some interesting dynamics, demographic kind of challenges where, um, you know, the population, younger people aren't reproducing, older people are living longer. Mm -hmm. So there's like not enough of a base to support um, people like and and so that's why you have this like drive towards robotics and automation, um, you know, to like sustain that gap, that demographic gap. And then at the same time, you have like huge amounts of quantitative easing where the government hmm. just like tons of money. The 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 debt to GDP ratio is like sky high. So you've got all these like I don't know macro kind of indicators that just don't look that great <laughs> and and so how how do you absorb that potential systemic shock that's to come um and 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 we think we think you know these technologies have that potential uh, and 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 Tokyo just has like tons and tons of capital and so we're starting to see like I don't I don't know Steve maybe I'm sure you caught this but when they introduced fees for example into the chinese exchanges it mm-hmm. became apparent that actually the volume is coming from japan yeah yeah that actually this whole time japan was the one leading the markets and really it was just china that was inflating everything but as i always 
personally believe, you know, Japan would be the most <laughs> um, quickly to adopt Ethereum currencies as they just, you know, legalized it, uh, Bitcoin itself. Um, so it goes to show that Japan was really the one leading the charge all along. The plot thickens. Mm. So Japan is super cool. And, and, and then the other interesting, so then the APAC region, the Asia, Asia Pacific region. Um, so one of the things, for example, in Singapore, Singapore is kind of like the capital, if you will. It's the gateway into Asia in many, in many respects. Um, very interesting place tiny place uh you know ethnically diverse you've got kind of chinese indian malay and western cultures all sort of working together in this small relatively small city in the searing heat like the tropical heat and like nobody wants to work in the heat but somehow they've managed to build an incredible city um you know they've got structured corporate um as effectively the government model i mean it's been incredibly effective effective um and so it's the like uh, headquarters capital for every major corporation in the world that uh, does business in Asia. Um, but then you look at some some other tensions there and you see that, um, well, you know, things are getting much more restrictive, right? Like you're getting like the, the right, what I call the regulatory network effect, where you almost have too many regulations layered on top of each other. And, and there's just like, too much um in, in in some instances impositions on um whether it's you know budding entrepreneurs uh, or medium small medium enterprise that want to kind of expand it just gets really expensive and difficult um and so i think there's tremendous opportunity in singapore not necessarily on the financial independence freedom like user consumer but more on the like using ethereum and ipfs and things that um, can potentially alleviate some of the pain points of doing stuff like registering corporations, issuing stocks, you know, like corporate activities, corporate governance, proxy voting, things like that, um, where I think some of these tools um, and, and some of these applications that are being built uh, could be implemented and and be a part of the infrastructure of like, you know, this headquarter capital gateway into Asia that is Singapore. And and so that's like a slightly different dynamic, but nonetheless, I think it's potentially very, very impactful. Um, and then right next to Singapore, you've got the Philippines, which is the fastest growing economy in Asia. It's just booming. It has been for a while. Um, Philippines is really interesting. I actually used to live there and I speak the language. It's a super cool place. Um, was colonized in the 16th century by the Spanish. The name comes from King Philip of Spain. They're Catholic, which is like unique in Asia. I like your, um, uh, I like your, I like your quick history lessons. In between. Yeah, <laughs> man. He knows Breaking his stuff, man. man. I can, you could... And uh, King Arthur III was actually cousin. <laughs> 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 yeah. no, I'm sorry, please keep I'm getting me. educated right now. <laughs> educated. <laughs> No, I mean, I think I've just been baked in so many cities and I've heard so many stories <laughs> over the years that... <laughs> just been high and walked around and looked at a yeah. lot. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. That's kind of my job. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, but the historical stuff, what I've learned in my experience is at least having some context on that is important because it allows you to understand what's happening in the present. Um, and, and... And, and, you know, because you can't just like go to Asia and say, oh, I'm in Asia, for example, because it's like wildly diverse or like people that people that do big comments where they're like, oh, Bitcoin in Africa. It's like, dude, there's dozens of there's like, what, 58 countries in Africa. It's like extremely diverse. There's hundreds, thousands of different. Oh, at least a little bit um, before you can before you can kind of figure out what's going on right now. Um, and so, and so effective and, and, and so yeah, colonized by the Spanish. Um, and then really over the last hundred, 110 years, it's kind of been like an American colony, uh, world war two, you know, MacArthur went back and like liberate, you know, the Navy liberated the Philippines and all that kind of stuff. And so everybody speaks English and you get over there and everybody, I mean, like Every Filipino has like a relative in the States. It's very, very uh, closely connected to the United States. And so um, – and then there's like 110 million people. 12 million of them live overseas. Um, 
you know, in many of the like, you know, Northern European or North American countries and they send back a ton of money. And so things like remittance make a lot of sense. Um, and I think there's a bunch of companies that are innovating in that space actually happening. Um, like for example, there's some local companies that have partnered with like all of the banks, all of the pawn shops. And like when you go to these countries, like for example, when you go to the Philippines, you'll see lots of pawn shops and lots of little money changer places like everywhere. So now you can use services to send Bitcoin to local companies that will like exchange for you. Like Rebit is one, like instead of remittance, Rebittance, you know, it's like a little, mm-hmm. so Rebit, I think Rebit.ph, um, really bright guys. And, and so you can send Bitcoin, they'll do, they're basically running an OTC desk with this um, remittance app is like their, you know, their business, their sort of front end, if you will. Um, and then whether it's your, your Lola, your Tita, your grandmother, your aunt, whatever, whoever needs to pick up the money can do so at like, I don't know, like a million locations now throughout the country. So that last mile thing has been kind of bridged. Um, And that's like a huge development that a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, So Mm -hmm. like now when I go to the Philippines, I I literally have zero need for, for a bank account. I don't need to deal with Western Union. I don't need to deal with any of the traditional stuff. I can... I can go to their website or other similar competitors, send myself some Bitcoin, step outside and like in one of millions of places, literally step outside, go and pick up my cash. And I can do that. And, and you know, so now I can participate in the local economy. Um, but where that's really interesting is like if you're sending money back home, the cost of doing so, you know, reduces dramatically, which is impactful in the provincial areas because like an extra 20 that gets to your your aunt in the province in the Philippines is a big deal, mm-hmm. right? It's like a lot of money um, versus it going to like Western Union or something. Uh, so the Philippines is like booming. It's got this tremendous potential, um, you know, to to really become a dynamic, uh, uh, you know, developing economy. And and so whether it's for remittance or whether it's um, you know financial institutions adopting the technology to make their business processes more efficient there's just a ton of stuff happening there too that's like super low-key under the radar but like very impactful i think um you know as a a developing nation uh, example let's uh Um, let's let's, uh switch over to instead of i guess the geographically located conversation about like what consensus is doing currently and like i'm curious you have your you're part of one like i would say the largest entity that's associated with ethereum that's making a lot of the new products associated with the entire space the entire blockchain space if you will what products or services that is consensus currently working on that the developers and businesses that consensus works with gets most most excited about uh so i guess so i guess consensus is first of all an oddly configured entity um yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's got this it's got this like hub and spoke architecture where there's like a hub of uh some you know kind of core members um and and within the hub resides things like intellectual property resources uh you know financial resources and otherwise and just kind of the broader network and then spokes are like projects that that come into consensus very often it'll just be like i don't know like a couple people that have an idea and no other VC will entertain the idea. And, and then Joe, Joe is just like amazing. He's like a unicorn. He'll just say, yeah, why don't you hang out with us and, you know, we'll give you some resources. You can kind of like explore this. And if it becomes that can become its own entity um, and spin off and kind of do its own thing. So, Block Apps is an example of a consensus spoke that spun off and it's a, it's its own entity. Gnosis, the prediction market is now its own entity and it's going to go through like its you know token launch and sort of just go off and do its own thing. So ultimately, the idea, the vision is to essentially build a mesh um, of uh, either quasi-independent or fully independent entities, um, make use of things like tokens, uh, make use of things like boardroom, so our corporate governance tools um, to sort of like, uh, you know, mechanically bind all of these different uh, entities, um, ensuring that we're all incentivized to richly communicate and sort of actively participate 
and help each other out. So it's got like, you know, this like Brooklyn hipster kumbaya thing going on too, you know, because we're all. <laughs> do you guys get artisanal mayonnaise? Nice to each other. And that's cool. And I, do we what? Sorry. Do you get artisanal mayonnaise delivered? <laughs> uh, we've got like uh, cold brew coffee and kombucha on tap. but uh but but also you know within that so so there is like the you know kind of like tech whatever like kind of thing going on with that culture but then there's also like some of us have been management consultants we've worked in large corporates and so we're maybe a little bit oh i'm one of those you know (laughs) yeah you know maybe a little bit on the conservative spectrum as far as um, you know, the fiscal policy is concerned, and and so so there is tensions and dynamics which I think are very healthy that that don't sh- allow the the mesh, if you will, to stray sort of in any in any one end of the spectrum too far. And I think I think that helps us stay fairly balanced. Um, but in terms of products, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that we're building. Um, you know, some of it is researchy stuff that we're just building because nobody else is building. We'll see what happens. And then other things are, and, and other things are, you know, probably either already productized or going to be productized, and we hope they'll they'll turn into something useful. So, you know, that I I guess the the one that kind of pops to my mind is is really identity. So if it's something like MetaMask, which basically brings the Web three experience to your browser, um, or or Uport, which is kind of our you know, self-sovereign identity, mobile view on on the world, uh, which which we hope to kind of d- deploy, roll out in, in the next couple quarters, I guess. Um, you know, those would be sort of foundational components, um, let's say, or core components, if you will. Um, below that, you would have like developer tools. So those are things like Truffle. I don't know if you guys ever talked to Tim Coulter, but he's a super cool dude. I have. I, um, use, I use Truffle. I'm in their Gitter channel like crazy, so. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Coulter is a beast. He just, I don't know. I don't know how that dude does it, but he's, you know, he yeah. just, uh, he's been cranking this thing out for a couple of years now and it's starting to, you know, turn into its own community. Um, and, and then BTC Relay, for example, is another developer tool. Um, below that at the infrastructure layer, we've got like block apps, for example. So it's a Haskell implementation. A lot of the private, sort of blockchain enterprise sandboxy kind of things that large corporates do. They use block apps or Infura is, is another one. And then, you know, platform and applications, things like Gnosis. The one I, I'm super personally really interested in is, well, the content distribution stuff. So Ujo um, music is, is, an, is, you know, like how do you ensure that in this, golden age of music where we as consumers literally have anything available to us anytime we want pretty much for free um you know how do you ensure that uh not only the rights but ultimately value um is let's say a little bit more egalitarian and evenly distributed to content creators um and so when you give them the opportunity to distribute so first of all have custody over like we were saying before um, have custody over their rights, their, the, the content that they create, and then the ability to distribute it um, directly to, you know, direct consumer sort of model, um, and and have, you know, those rights sort of um, something that uh, that can be exchanged without necessarily needing, um, like I don't want to, I don't want to say record labels are evil or anything like that because they're not, but you know there are instances where. Lots and lots of artists have just signed bad deals and they're like toast when they didn't really need to. So giving people the choice, you know, whether they want to distribute their own content um, or singular DTV kind of has a similar view on it for, um, you know, television and video content. Um, and, and then and then there's a bunch of other stuff, too, that, um, you know, like this balance three thing. Do you guys know? Well, obviously you do, but I don't know. Have you talked much about like triple entry accounting? I know it's not super exciting, but we haven't talked about it. We haven't talked about it on the show, but I am familiar with balance three and what they're doing with the, with the triple entry. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, maybe not like the most interesting topic, but basically, you know, when you have um, transactions on the blockchain, you know, you've got in traditional finance world, and th and this is a big deal because, you know, you've got do double entry accounting. So you've got like, I don't know, I sell you something, there's like a debit in my book, a credit your book or vice versa. Um, and, and when we do that on the blockchain, and so that's so now there's a, a credit entry. debit and a hash. That's right. So there's a crypto, there's a, there's a guarantee that we engage in that transaction that our bo books are linked. And so what that means is like, you know, the way the accounting gets done and the way auditing gets done changes substantially so that we don't need to like, I don't know if we're Deloitte or somebody and we're auditing a fortune 500, you don't start from today, go back in time, collect a bunch of receipts and try to constitute a picture of what happened. Um, because that at scale, like gets really expensive and hard, which is which is fundamentally the thing that happened um, in 2008 that brought us to like the edge of the zombie apocalypse where there was just so much stuff, you know. Uh, the you know, economic walking dead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine when Walmart can't pay its employees what happens in America? Like, I mean, it would have been horrible. But, you, you know, there's, <laughs> there's so much stuff there. There's so much that discrep so many discrepancies that are difficult to account for because you can hide stuff that then you just don't know it until the last second. It's like exponential growth. You don't know it's too late until right before it happens. Um, and so with, with this triple entry counting notion using the blockchain, we have effectively like a real-time view into the auditing sort of side of things and can ensure that um, things are, you know, sort of as they should be. Um, and and that's really important because, you know, at scale, again, if you if you – if you project that out, um, it, you know, it helps, in, it helps maintain systemic, um, like balance and, and mitigate systemic risk associated with, um, you know, the kinds of funny business that the AIGs or the Enrons of the world or every other major corporate has always ever done and always ever will try to do. Um, so, so accounting is like another big one, but that's like a longer tailed story. That's going to take a lot of time and effort, but it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that like Joe is committed to not only like the small quick win stuff, um, but also the longer term like you know potential game changer stuff, which might seem like pie in the sky on the surface, but you know I, I think we're committed to longer term um, you know projects that could materially impact ecosystems. Um, and, 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 you know, we're willing to like spend resources and, and be patient and try to make that change, I guess. So, so what would you say to, uh, if you guys are like spending resources here, what would you say to an individual who was a developer who was listening in on the show, um, who, who might have an idea, who's kind of sitting here on the sidelines and maybe they're an investor in Ethereum or they're an investor in another one of these other, uh, more prominent, uh, token sales. Um, you know, and they're sitting by the wayside and they're waiting to want to build something or they have an idea. What's a good stepwise procedure, do you think, right now uh, in the Ethereum ecosystem to like sort of just get started budding and to like start working on an idea? Uh, well, I mean, like tweet at me, bro. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> that's, that's usually it's funny because a lot it's there's so much stuff that comes in through Twitter. It's not even funny, actually. But um yeah, no, okay, so that's like the consensus side. There's just tons of ways to get in touch with us. Anyone can feel free to uh, find me on Twitter um, or whatever, online, anywhere. Um, but generally speaking, as far as the ecosystem is concerned, I think I think there's a lot of opportunities um, and, and like individual. So you've got a cool idea. Maybe you want to explore that idea. Um, of course, now we're seeing... Um, opportunities to take ideas to the market and, uh, you know, and, and, and do things like token launches and secure the kind of resources um, necessary to uh, actually realize those ideas without, you know, the, the cumbersome, slow, difficult, often inefficient process of going through VC channels, which by the way, doesn't mean that traditional venture capital is a bad thing. I, I, I think traditional venture capital is fantastic. And um, like I, I, I extol its virtues all the time. Um, it's just that, particularly in a micro enterprise context, um, sometimes or very often, it's difficult to convince um, you know 
uh, an investor, first of all, find, talk to, build a relationship and convince an investor to give you the kind of resources that you need to do something crazy. I got a question for you. So in projects. Oh, sure. sorry. The timing was weird. They cut out on me. I didn't mean to way interrupt. Keep going. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I, I don't know if there was lag there, but um, what what I was saying was um, so so securing funding in a traditional context for a crazy Ethereum idea whose business model may not be apparent on the surface because a lot of stuff that comes out, um, I, I don't think that – so you look at it in a vacuum and you say this is stupid. This isn't going to work. But you know when you start to kind of like run a bunch of scenarios – um, as the network effect takes scale, uh, takes hold, as to scale out, as more core components are built by others and introduced into the ecosystem, because remember, all a lot all, like this stuff is all interoperable, so you can make use of stuff that uh, others build, and it sort of like, you know, helps the collaborative process in the entire ecosystem accelerate much more, sort of quickly, um, and maybe a traditional VC isn't going to see that, but. You know, one of the powerful things with this crypto space is that, like, the nerds have the money, like, the engineers have the money now, and they can deploy that capital frictionlessly in in small amounts among many of them um, into some of these interesting projects. And so that is definitely one route that uh, that people can can look at. Um, and then and then and then beyond that, as far as how to get involved, like I said, in New York City. Or Toronto, or a bunch of other London, a lot of a lot of places. There's tons of meetups, uh, bit dev meetups, um, both technical and business meetups. So definitely, um, you know, participate in those. And if you can't, like if you, I don't know if you live in Timbuktu or something, or uh, you know, um, then there's resources online. Um, there's you know whether it's shows like this or, um, but uh, but but yeah, I, I think I think the ecosystem in general is uh, is pretty inclusive and I, I'm very excited that lots and lots of, you know, small groups or individuals around the world are starting to like dabble in the space, I guess. Awesome. Well, well, thank, well, thank you very much, John. We, we, we appreciate your time bringing you on the show and filling us up, filling our minds with uh, everything in relation to what consensus is working on sort of like what you are doing from a global standpoint and what you're eventually hoping is the end game. Uh, before we scoop out of here, uh, what is that? Is there anything that you would need to leave the audience with, as far as in relation to maybe an effort, uh, an upcoming effort that Consensus is working on, um, or or a project that might be uh, worth clo uh, closely keeping an eye on? Is there anything you want us to uh, look forward to? The show? Yes, I wanted to touch upon this uh, at least real quick. So, uh, Middle East, North Africa, like that is a part of the world that I think very few of us are paying attention to. Um, and, and so consensus has been doing a bunch of stuff in Dubai lately. Um, Dubai is, so to contextualize Dubai, Dubai is a six hour flight from two thirds of the world's population. So two thirds of the world's population lives within a six hour flight from Dubai. And much of that demographic is just entering into like the digital age if you will and so dubai is like extremely well positioned and it's kind of like the epicenter of of things that are happening in the like indian subcontinent um things that are happening in north africa and of course throughout the broader middle east region um and so they are like racing towards the future the government has um and the private sector has really embraced opportunity um you know things that uh, are not just window dressing but will be like production systems that materially impact stuff um you know there's there's tons and tons of rfps and and lots of different activities happening from various government agencies and, and private sector and there's tons of capital there right like money's not the problem um it's really uh, you know finding the ideas implementing them and taking things forward um that's the opportunity and then also in the regional context, um, if you look at, for example, places like Saudi Arabia, wh which is undergoing a massive transformation that sometimes is difficult to see through, let's say, political noise and things like that. But um, there is, for example, the Aramco 
Um, so, so oil companies, so it's the biggest oil company in the world, is being turned into a sovereign wealth fund that's going to be investing. I mean, it'll have more money than like anything, and it's going to be investing heavily in tech. So you're going to see tons from basically being dependent on oil into something that looks like a services economy, a technology-driven economy. That's going to be a major transformative effort that I think has the potential to positively impact the world. Um, and so, you know, lots and lots of activity happening there. Um, if you look at even things like BitOasis, their their uh, Bitcoin exchange in the region, they'll tell you uh, there's stuff online anyway about like volume in, in Saudi Arabia and throughout the region just like exploding. Um, so lots of cool stuff happening and and pushing into the African continent. Um, could, could, you know, you, very- could, could you? Could you? Can I? Can I interrupt you for just one second? Sure. Um, and I want. I want to touch on the um, the uh, the sort of Dubai, Saudi Arabia um, sort of sector for just one quick second. And I just want maybe you can verify something for me real quick. Uh, what I'm what I'm sort of seeing um, from an outside perspective, looking through the noise with what consensus is doing uh, in Dubai. Um, and, you know, over there in the Middle East in general, it's really interesting to me because, you know, over there they have a lot of money tied up into commodities like oil, right? And, yeah. you know, when you look at Ethereum as a whole, it's kind of like a like an intangible oil, right? Basically like a commodity and asset that can basically drive the future of other digital infrastructure. Um, and so you say that Dubai and like, the, you know, they're sort of and those different states over in that area are looking to move to more of like a services related economy. So, you know, it sort of like lends the effort where it's like these people are being smart and they're investing their money in technology going forward because, you know, the the, the drive of automation, the drive of the wealth, which is currently, which is a tangible asset, like, you know, crude oil and things like that, it's slowly losing its importance to things like renewable energy. So it sounds to me like these countries are just being smart and they're putting their money where uh, they can still hold basically a similar foothold as far as like um, influence on a global basis uh, and they can protect their wealth long term. Do you think that's kind of what they're trying to do? Uh, so, yeah, there's certainly elements of that. I mean, every nation in the world wants to, you know, protect its interests. Um, but I think in this region in particular, um, there's another dynamic, too, where there's a younger population um they're, you know, they're broadly exposed globally, kind of like, you know, global citizens, et cetera, all that kind of good stuff, um, who are genuinely interested in seeing progress in the region and progress on many fronts, um, whether they're economic, um, whether they're social, whether it's political, what have you. And part of that journey is necessarily dependent on, you know, moving away from some of the old um ways of doing things so oil driven commodities driven as you said legacy financial kind of back rooms you know cigar room dealing kind of stuff where 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 really hierarchy and and you know dominance and and sort of that kind of well understood control is is king to you know into the light where opportunity um where you know like platforms that enable actors to engage in markets that otherwise wouldn't necessarily be accessible to them technologies that afford people the opportunities to um, be dynamic and creative and generate value um you know like the kind of cool stuff that uh that we all get excited about whether it's in places like san francisco or brooklyn or berlin or whatever People in young people in places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi, even in Saudi Arabia, they want to like build that kind of a community and that kind of a vibe and opportunity landscape for themselves too. Um, and that's something that I was naive until I started like meeting these young entrepreneurs. There's a super cool um, tech uh, festival I was just at in Dubai called Step. It's like you know, I mean, you would think you're in Brooklyn or something. You wouldn't think you're in the Middle East um, hmm. at, at, at that festival. Um, and so, you know, that dynamic, I think, is important for 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 us as a, as a, as a blockchain community to consider and embrace and realize that it's not necessarily the that consensus wants to go in there and or anybody, you know, in our space wants to go in there necessarily. And I don't know make a bunch of money working with the oil companies because that's not, I mean, we don't need it. That's not what we're interested in. It's how do we get in there and, you know, work 
lot of these um, entrepreneurs, these younger people, like I said, that are creative, dynamic, and genuinely want to change the vibe. And that I think is super cool, and it's it's really interesting um, to consider, and and just the sheer scale thing, because I, I I really think that if that region develops like you know um, away from the old and towards the new, um, I, I think the whole world is going to be better off for it. Awesome. Well, and thank you for that. Uh, I think that's probably a great way to close up close up the show um, with that last Definitely. thought. Uh, unless there's any other way, any other thing you gentlemen want to ask before we get out of here? That was perfect. That was, that was perfect. No. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, John. I, I think I really appreciate you giving us an update on, you know, what you guys are focusing on here, like in the near term and the long term. And, you know, it, it's nice to have our, you know, our eyes opened on what exactly you guys are uh, focusing on. So, so again, thank you very much. And, uh, and, you know, whenever you guys uh, have some more really cool initiatives that are going to come out, I'm sure within the next like six months to a year, uh, come back on the show and fill us in and let us, and let us know what's good and what's new. Yeah, absolutely. And thank thank you guys for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure hanging out and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, of excellent. Yeah, well, thank, you. thank you very much, John. Well, you enjoy the rest of your evening and you uh, enjoy your rest of your time in Japan. Or excuse and me, Scott. Yeah, yeah, morning time. Saturday morning in Hong Kong. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm. All right, well, you no have going to Wan Chai. <laughs> <laughs> cool. See you later. Later. Have a good one. Right. This episode of Block Channel is sponsored by Gnosis. Gnosis is a decentralized prediction market built on the Ethereum public blockchain. Gnosis provides an open source platform for anyone to predict the outcome of any event and plans to drastically simplify the creation of customized prediction market applications. For example, an individual can create a market on a future event such as the outcome of a political election or a company's earnings forecast. People from across the world can bet or predict the likelihood of this event actually occurring. Over time, the market aggregates the predictions from users from across the world, and Gnosis makes real-time market adjustments. This crowdsourced wisdom is groundbreaking as it provides forecasting accuracy and enables a host of new applications to be built on top of it. Gnosis imagines a future in which decisions are as informed as possible by markets which aggregate useful information in an optimal, open, and decentralized fashion. Check out the links in the show notes to learn more about their platform. Mr. Bus, what are you waking up? Say go in your cup.